While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Sliders in our closet just bubbling away. Nice. Ooh. Ooh. That's cool. Yeah. What, is it a specific kind of cider? Um, no, we just bought some at a farmer's market and then um, heated it up to pasteurization temperature, which, I mean, it had been pasteurized already, but we needed it. We wanted to add other stuff to it. So we added brown sugar. Um, we had a broken stick of cinnamon in there swirling around the whole time. Okay. And then some maple syrup. Ooh, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about oh, the books sight. you've been meaning to read and the beers you've been meaning to drink. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I, that was a misnomer when I said beers. We're actually talking about cider. More cider talk. More cider talk. Did we we're already talk about cider? In, yeah, we did. Um, like last week or the week before. I don't know. But welcome now we're putting, we're putting theory into practice. Wait, you're making pudding? No, what did where'd you get that from? You said you you said you were working on your pudding theory. No, I'm putting theory into practice. I have a pudding theory. The Pudding's delicious. <sighs> That's not a very good theory. <laughs> I've never made homemade pudding. I've made jello. Isn't jello pudding homemade? You just like dump it into the bowl and whisk it around and if that's... you make it in your home, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very loose definition. Wait, I don't even know what how do you even does jello powder like occur naturally in nature? Like, how do you? Oh, that's a fair point. Is yeah, it? Yeah. How do you make? How do you make pudding? Well, jello is a whole different thing, right? Like the difference between what makes chocolate pudding different from jello? Less or more horse feet? Well, I mean, jello is just a brand name because they but, make okay, pudding gelatin. and also gelatin. Does put does chocolate pudding have gelatin in it? I don't know. I don't. I I came underprepared for this pudding discussion. <laughs> well, did you come prepared to talk about H.P. Lovecraft? Andrew? I did. I just imagine like Chilean miners going down and like getting pudding, like Jello powder, out of the earth and wheeling it out in big mine carts. And Bill Cosby's like standing in some watchtower. Yeah, like with a whip. <laughs> Still wearing like a Huxtable sweater the whole time. Yeah, did, I mean, Jello One Two Three is way more complicated than than you would think. Did you ever have that? It was basically just put like layered pudding. No, what is that? It's I mean, they had three layers of pudding. It'd be like chocolate, vanilla, chocolate. Oh, I thought you were talking. And about they something. called it Jello One Two Three. One Two Three. Thought it was like pudding. With like cherries and then whipped cream and then more pudding. Oh or no, it's a, like that. it looks like it's it's gelatin and then like whipped cream and then something else on top of it. So okay, never mind. So it's what I gross. said? H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> Howard Pudding Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's talk about him. He's a writer. I read. At the Mountains of Madness, which is a book of his from 1931. Um, sorry, I had to double check. 
he had written it then, and then it was whether or not it made it um, through serialization in that same year. It was also right. collected in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, you had re- you've read some some Lovecraft, right, Andrew? Yeah, I um I went through like a gloomy phase in high school, and I <laughs> read we all. Yeah, I read Lovecraft and like those Johnny the Homicidal Maniac comics and like lots of stuff that I thought was dark and edgy. How many days Which per week were you spending in Hot Topic? I would only go there occasionally to get new t-shirts. Yep, same but here. I would I would go in there a lot. How did how did you get turned on to Lovecraft? Um I had a I had a friend who I was basically like I was a freshman and he was a senior and I was basically trying to emulate everything that he did because I thought he was really cool. So high school. So high school. So he read Lovecraft and so I read some Lovecraft and all right. that's how I got into it. But um I have I have by no means read all of his stuff and it's been I don't know, it's been probably seven or eight years since I've actually looked at anything. Okay. That Seems he's fair. done. But um yeah, he's he's best known for his short stories, and some of some of which are really short, and then some of which are closer to like short novel length, which I think um, Mountains of Madness is a short novel. Kind yeah, of thing. you could classify it as a novella. And um, yeah, he was born 1890, died 1937, so pretty young. And mm-hmm. um, he's one of those unfortunate writers who was pretty much unknown during his life, and then attain lasting fame as like a a grandfather of horror and and sci-fi yeah he died so like he he died a pauper i wasn't (laughs) able to track specifically when uh, mostly just through negligence i wasn't able to track this um (laughs) you weren't able to track it but you didn't try very when oh i just realized that this should have been a thing i looked up but like when he started getting renowned i mean i imagine it was kind of like um like a velvet underground effect where nobody yes, bought his certainly. stuff during his lifetime but everybody who did buy his stuff became a prolific horror fiction author <laughs> <laughs> and so you find that you know you find out about him yeah. by the you know through the people who he influenced i think that happens a lot with lesser known authors and bands and, and whatever like I think that's a like well, a yeah. neutral milk hotel situation if you want to <laughs> if you want a slightly more updated <laughs> reference. Okay. Well, and Stephen King is widely regarded himself and and highly regards uh Lovecraft and said that he was a huge influence on Yeah, him so all you need is like one super famous person to say, "Oh, I like this. I like this obscure author or this obscure band or whatever and that can that can vault them to to higher fame than they ever achieved during their lifetimes yeah that was the work i was thinking of um stephen king's book on writing dance macabre Mm -hmm. which i think is where he cited uh lovecraft the guy who ended up finally publishing lovecraft's works was a man named august derleth it's a good name that's a pretty sounds like a name out of a Lovecraft sounds like story, a, <laughs> or like a, a the lead singer of a metal band. I'm not sure what oh, kind well, of like what sub sub genre of metal we're talking about, but some some really dark colored Nordic type of music. Yeah, I think <laughs> is that what you're saying. <laughs> Black or gray metal or space gray metal, metal or something. 
Cthulhu metal. <laughs> That's how I first heard of Cthulhu, actually, to get off topic, is Metallica mm-hmm. had a couple songs about Cthulhu and various Cthulhu songs. Because, you know, when you're in your early 20s writing metal, like, what are you going to write yeah, about? Like, what, like, about? It's the Led Zeppelin <laughs> Hobbit thing all over again. Like, <laughs> what are these people doing? <laughs> It's like the one guy in your band reads, and he's not like reading The Economist. He's reading Lovecraft, yeah. or he's it's like, you know, what Tolkien. would go really great in the speed metal song is something about Aslan. <laughs> uh, so I wish we could say that Lovecraft's life started out a little bit better than it ended up, because he did end up a bit of a yeah, pauper. And I alone? wish we could say anything good happened to him during his lifetime at all. <laughs> he seemed to have had a rough yeah. go. So, like, he was he grew up in the Massachusetts. Well, he was born in Providence, Rhode Island, um, and as he had family in Massachusetts, his father suffered a nervous breakdown when Lovecraft was like three, and then died five years mm-hmm. later. So already that kind of sets the stage. <laughs> for some rough childhood uh, stuff for him. Um, his grandfather turned him on to some like literary work. He ended up reading Arabian Nights. Uh, he adapted the pseudonym of Abdul Al-Hazared when he was like seven, Okay, which ended up being the person who wrote the fictional work, the Necronomicon mm-hmm. and all of his like evil Lovecraftian stories later. <laughs> um, this was a quote from the Lovecraft website that I enjoyed in the biography. His interest in the weird was fostered by his grandfather, who entertained Lovecraft with off-the-cuff weird tales in the gothic mode. Huh. If you were to try and attempt a definition of weird fiction, Andrew, what would it be? Weird fiction? I mean... I don't know, like, I'm just thinking, it's just Lovecraft, like, all I can think of is tentacle monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, it's one of those things where the dude who is best classified in the style is the guy who helped coin the term, Mm -hmm. and what Lovecraft seemed really interested in uh, was this genre-less supernatural fiction. Um, and this is, you know, early 20th century before like science fiction really became yeah, a thing. We kind of encountered this with H.G. Wells mm-hmm. before, you know, um, where science is still as we understand it and encounter it on a day to day basis now is kind of still really nascent. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lines between, you know, fantasy or ghost story or science fiction story are all super blurry. Yeah, like I, I don't think seems... science fiction had quite turned its its um, sights on space like it did later, like in the Star Trek Star Wars era. But I don't like thinking about Mountains of Madness, which is about an expedition to Antarctica, which as you know, as Lovecraft was writing, had not been fully explored yet. It's interesting yes. how how writers are drawn to the unknown when they're when they're writing mm-hmm. this kind of stuff i guess because they are less constrained by by facts like it's easier to get people to suspend their disbelief when when you're going out into this blurry nothingness that nobody knows anything about i guess 
Yeah, and you can do a thing that, you know, unlike, say, another book we've covered, The Wizard of Oz, where you invent this other fictional universe, you can use a kind of shadowy part of the real world and infuse it with whatever the heck you want. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take, like you said, you can take a part of the actual Earth that people are not fully aware of or or have full understanding of, and you can say, "Oh, there's here there be dragons, <laughs> or here there be tentacle monsters." You know, uh, I think there's a quote from Lovecraft. I, I don't have it written down, but I I encountered in my research where he set a lot of his fiction in that Massachusetts, Providence area, Providence, Rhode Island area, because there was something a little more mysterious outside the cities in kind of the rural area. Mm-hmm. You know, think Sleepy Hollow from a couple weeks ago. Except where, more spooky. Except spookier, um, where folk tales can kind of take on a, a life of their own, and it's harder to contradict them if you present them in the mm-hmm. right way. Um, so just continuing the biography stuff real quick, uh, a couple other members of Lovecraft's family along the way uh, either had, you know, mental issues or, or died probably earlier, you know, not of just natural causes. Or both. Like, or his both, mother was you know. eventually carted off to the same asylum that his dad had died at and also yep. died. <laughs> he just, he he could not catch a break, this guy. No, not at all. And uh, it seemed that that kind of all instilled in him this what became in his writing called cosmicism, okay. I think, which is a term that he, that he coined, uh, which is like a weird offshoot of nihilism. Uh, so it's not just that there's no higher purpose to anything. Have fun with that. <laughs> it's the idea that we are insignificantly small in the grand scheme of cosmic mm-hmm. events, um, which in... Uh, I was called him Cthulhu, excuse me, <laughs> in Lovecraft's writings kind of takes shape as there are extra beings and space aliens and eternally old things that, you know, predate man and kind of render man and his, uh, all of his concerns woefully insignificant. Mm-hmm. Uh to the point that if were you to consider them, you would be driven insane. Uh, so I think there's a connection. He he's also like like we said before with his uh, unfortunate economic situation. Um, that wasn't just because of his writing. Like he didn't want to move to Chicago to start editing this magazine because he didn't want to leave his wife. But then when he needed to move back with his family, they were like, "No, we're better than your wife moving here with us and running a." like a store your wife can leave now his he needed to move back with his aunts and the plan was for her to open a shop in providence they were like we don't want you to be married to a tradesperson so that worked out well for him that weird like combination of like trying to be high class but not having any money (laughs) yep very streetcar named desire it seems yeah yeah Um, Uh, i don't know like there's a lot of other stuff about Lovecraft like he was I don't know he was prone to anxiety prone to illness um, prone to reclusiveness suffered from night terrors um, yeah had like a history of of insanity and depression in his family and I think like all of that 
I think a lot of that comes out in his work. Yes. He like it just it's all he, very it's all very dark. <laughs> it is very dark. So let's just get into the work okay. itself and we'll kind of tease out other elements of the darkness, I suppose. So Mount Amandus arrives later in Lovecraft's oeuvre. So by the time that you would be reading it, you've already read other works that kind of build out this larger Cthulhu mythos. Uh, and Cthulhu is a monster who has a tentacle head and a dragon body and sort of moves like a man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He lives in the ocean. It's weird. And this whole mythos with these old creatures is constantly referenced in this book. So what's happening in the Mountains of Madness is there's going to be an expedition to Antarctica. And it's going to be, it's very highly publicized. Everyone is very excited about it. Well, Dr. William Dyer, Professor William Dyer, says we should not let people go to Antarctica anymore. Um, a couple years back, a bunch of me and a bunch of other people went there. We published all these articles. And now I need to tell you the true story of what happened so that you will not go. Um, it's it's kind of kind of in the epistolary form in the sense that like the audience, the reader is like a fictional audience member of the story. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, I mean Lovecraft is big on epistolary stuff. Like he's my I think my favorite story, or if not my favorite, like the one that has stuck with me the most is um called the it's the curious case of Charles Dexter Ward or just the case of Charles Dexter yeah. Ward. I don't remember what the mm-hmm. what the adjective is there. But yeah, it's it's yeah, it's holding the epistolary style. Um, it's about somebody who is digging and discovers something terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the big thing about Lovecraft is that he is—I don't know—like people think of the monster characters, so they think of the Cthulhu's and the Yogg-Sothoths or whatever. Yep. Uh huh. <laughs> but um. What I mean, when you actually read his work, the thing that really comes through and stays with you is like that sense of brooding terror. Like there's something that's that's happening or something that will happen that's bad. And then you actually encounter the monster for barely any time at all. And Lovecraft is like a master of having these monsters appear in his stories, but then like proceeding to do a really bad job of describing the monsters like in that way in that way where your imagination will conjure up something that's worse than he could ever write down. Yeah, so let's let me can allow me to jump to the some of the monsters in Mountains of Sure, Madness. yeah, I'm just I'm just this is what I this is no, what has stuck with me from Lovecraft's stuff. And and you've you've actually perfectly articulated what happens in this story, so I kind of want to f- match that up with the story mm-hmm. itself. They go to Antarctica. They're hanging out. They're hanging out on a boat. It's really cool. Antarctica's super great. It's it's like like nothing they've ever seen before, except in these paintings. They keep referencing like a painter who had uh, drawn it all, and they're like, "Oh, that's neat." It reminds he like says it like ten times in the book. That's why I'm thinking about it. Um, a smaller expedition goes out. They have this new drill. They're going to drill for rocks because that's what mm-hmm. you do. And instead of rocks, they find a cave full of aliens. <laughs> Let me give you the description of this uh, frozen alien that they found. Six feet end to 
end-to-end, three and five-tenths feet central diameter, tapering to one foot at each end, like a barrel with five bulging ridges in place of staves. Lateral breakages, as of thinnest stalks, are at equator in middle of these ridges. In furrows between ridges are curious growths, combs or wings that fold up and spread out like fans, which give almost seven-foot wing spread. Arrangement reminds one of certain monsters of primal myth, especially fabled elder things in the Necronomicon. <laughs> so at that last, in the last section there, uh, he's referencing this made-up book that he has put in almost, not all of his stories, of but them, is in yeah. a lot of them. So much so that people have like published fake versions of it claiming that it's the real mm-hmm. book that inspired all these stories, which is just hot topic dumbness <laughs> it's not all hot topic but yeah hot topic has come has come to like represent the worst of that co-option <laughs> so and what actually it kind of to publish it subverts co-option is a word by the way don't no don't, i'm gonna let it go though it's fine me on that one <laughs> i didn't um the uh the monsters themselves i had a really hard time keeping in my brain what they looked like throughout the book. And I think that's kind of to Lovecraft's credit. He gives you, he does his best to describe it in this kind of faux scientific voice Mm -hmm. in a way that almost obfuscates what it actually looks like. You know, it never just says, oh, they look like this with a this. It's not just, oh, it's a squid with arms. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and it helps that often his characters go insane when they see the thing that they're describing. So, Yeah, and multiple times in this book, the uh, the narrator will say, and now I'm getting to the point that is really hard to describe. <laughs> like, he says that a couple of times. Uh, so these weird monsters get discovered, and... Uh, meanwhile, the guy who discovered them is radioing all of this information back to where William Dyer and the rest of the team mm-hmm. are. Then they go radio silent. Uh-oh. What do you think happens, Andrew? They got killed by tentacle monsters. <laughs> Some of the tentacle <laughs> monsters were still alive. So, uh, Dyer gets in a plane with this other dude named... I need to not forget Danforth. Man, somebody um, needs to take better notes, and I think it's I I'm think looking, it's you. I, I have like five pages of notes up on my computer. I have to cycle back between all of them. Um, this book drove me mad. <laughs> You're doing uh, a really bad job. This is the part that gets hard to describe. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> uh, so Dyers and Danforth, uh, they fly out there. Um, everyone from the initial expedition is dead, of course. And they discover all these weird uh, graves where some of the aliens that were damaged uh, have been buried. But that's not all of the aliens that were discovered. Damaged aliens? What are you... Oh, excuse me. So when they found them, like, buried in the ice, some of them clearly had been injured. Or they were like, we're missing a head or missing an arm or something like that. Um, The ones that were in perfect condition are gone. Because they were still alive, I guess. Um, And they took, like, a person and a dog and some of the supplies and disappeared. So, because, of course, instead of running away, uh, Dyer and Danforth hop back in their plane and fly towards these gigantic mountains 
nearby. Are these the mountains of Manus, or are there some other mountains uh, somewhere? They are the mountains real close to the mountains There's of Madness. Some mountains of Madness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a really good quote. Uh, later, later in the book, um, as he's describing something, Lovecraft has the main character say, Perhaps we were mad, for have I not said those horrible peaks were mountains of Madness? <laughs> It's I don't I don't know what it is, but for some reason, like somebody in a work of fiction saying the name of the work of fiction is just the funniest thing in the whole world to me. Like that's <laughs> he says it. Oh God, can I do a quick like just just like no. okay, Susanna's watching Criminal Minds, which she okay. she'll just she cycles through um like middle brow crime procedurals which is fine like um yeah we only stopped watching bones like a year ago which i'm so happy about because <laughs> i i was watching it with her like i wanted to quit a year or so before that and she didn't want to and like the thought of her watching bones alone made me so sad that you couldn't i, let yeah, her do I that. stuck no I stuck you couldn't with let her do that until i could get her out too <laughs> that's very wise but anyway i like to i like to just walk by and comment that whoever it is on screen looks like they have a criminal mind. <laughs> You're what's wrong with America. <laughs> what's wrong with a lot of things. The phrase mountains of madness appears nine times in this Whoa. book. <laughs> and it's about 100 pages that's, long. That's so. a bunch. It's kind of a bunch. That's a bunch. Um, so they head off towards the mountains of madness. And they discover this ancient, decrepit, yet some like oddly compelling and beautiful ruined city and the stonework predates humanity by millions of years and it's all busted up and no one's there. Do they just know this because they're scientists or? Yeah, they're geologists. (laughs) So every once in a while they talk about like taking some of the stones and, and they can tell they toss around a whole bunch of, uh, like ages of geology that I do not know. I recognize Cambrian, and that's about it. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you remember like f- seventh grade science class Mes- or not, Mesozoic. but I do not. Mesozoic. <laughs> yeah. That, nope. <laughs> I don't think. I think that might get dropped at one point, but this is earlier right. than that. So there's they start going through this crazy city, uh, and very quickly are like, nope, all right, this is definitely the creatures from that crazy Necronomicon book. It's all real. Oh, crap, we're screwed. <laughs> and they, they're midway through the book, it becomes like a, a history textbook where they're able to glean a whole bunch of information about this culture from the murals on the walls, okay. which I guess we've done with like ancient Egypt and stuff, right? It's not too removed from like reality we needed to... we needed a rosetta stone but yeah i think it's it's something that could conceivably happen yeah i guess the thing for me is just maybe we just don't need this art form today but if i were like a million year old tentacle creature i don't know why i would spend all my days just carving what happened to my friends on yeah the i don't wall. think we do I mean, that i guess that's just facebook in though, our right? society like i guess we have statues and stuff but we don't. I don't think we have enough hieroglyphs. No, we don't have enough. Just like I carved a picture into my wall of what I ate yeah, that I th- day. I mean, people just then... don't. They're not willing to 
pony up the tax money that you need to. Like, I think that's what it is. <laughs> it's an issue of of small versus big government. Yeah. All right. Obama Vote. wants to <laughs> wants to watch what you're doing and chisel it into a wall. <laughs> uh, he's definitely a tentacle monster, right? Yeah. No, he is. Yeah. Where's the his birth certificate says um, <laughs> Bounds of Madness on it. He was born up there. The crazy dreams of my mm-hmm. father. Um, <laughs> so they discover by reading these hieroglyphs that the elder things came to the earth shortly after the moon was pulled loose from the planet. Okay. And they are responsible for all life on earth. Um, they kind of used whatever magic science they have. That's a recurring theme in Lovecraft, like that There's... these aliens have such good science that it might as well be magic, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's how science would appear to people who didn't know about science. Every every time-traveling episode of Star Trek has taught me that. <laughs> Dude goes back with a magic piece of technology and everyone... And all Whoa. of a sudden, there's a Nazi planet, and like... You figure it out. <laughs> you figure it out. Uh, but this is kind of the part where uh, later in, I guess, not too late, but a little bit later on in the in the writing of all of his stories, Lovecraft invites the readers to blend them all together in this tale because in the middle of this book, he spells out that these elder things not only invented the Shogoths, which are a bunch of, like, masses of slime and ooze that can you know take whatever shape they want okay they also fought the star spawn of cthulhu and the migo whatever the migo are i'm gonna actually find out what the migo are right now sounds like a website think? i think that's a, i think that's a brand the migo I think it's like a domain are... registrar or something <laughs> <laughs> uh the migo are space crabs they are fungoid, crustacean-like entities the size of a okay. man. Makes sense. Um, you know, <laughs> duh. Uh, so what happened is that this wonderful, great society, think ancient Rome, you know, pre-decline. With monsters. <laughs> with tentacle monsters. Uh, they fought a war against all these other space creatures. They may or may not have inadvertently created man- when they were touring, when they were toying around with like, Just like by bioengineering, yeah, they got like bored and like tossed something in the trash can, and then it became humanity. Uh, and then the Shogoths, which they had created as like d- worker drones, basically, mm-hmm. kind of Battlestar Galactica them, and like became sort of sentient and fought a war, and it were eventually subjugated, but drove the uh, the elder ones to. Uh, like the decline of their society Um, as did the ice Mm -hmm. age which forced them to go back to living in the ocean because you know (laughs) lovecraft Uh, and so then after learning all of this dyer and danforth don't just leave because that would be the sensible thing to do they keep going deeper into this city that is huge and is somewhat glacialized and they find all they find these crazy tunnels that go deeper and deeper and they're like oh well maybe we'll encounter some elder ones who knows they find what is their what is the their sledge. end game like they're just are they just interested in exploring or 
they know they need to leave, but they they I think one thing driving them on is they want to find the guy who went okay. missing, Gedney or or Gendry or something sure. like that. Um, and this dog that you know you gotta find the dog, Andrew. You gotta find it. Okay. <laughs> if the tentacle monsters stole the dog, you have to go save it. Um. So then they start discovering in the like dirt and detritus on the ground that other things have moved through this area quickly, like recently, um, which leads them to believe that what what the reader probably already surmised is that the plant aliens came back to life and stole their friends okay. and went back home to the ocean. <laughs> uh so they go deeper and deeper, and what what do you think they encounter first, Andrew? What is the first creature that you think they encounter? The first creature? With I your think... knowledge of Lovecraft. Um, or you can just describe it. You don't have to, you don't have to get it right. Well, I mean, it's, every it's hard to... Every monster it, sounds like you're clearing your throat. The part where it gets so. hard, to subscri- it's hard to describe. So <laughs> It's probably uh-huh. some, it some monster who is difficult to, to describe. That's my answer. Nope. It's a six-foot-tall albino penguin. Oh, okay. Giant penguins. That was my second guess. Just wandering around. (laughs) Giant albino blind penguins just wandering around this cave. Uh, And they're like, what are these penguins doing here? It's really confusing. Are the penguins like interested in them at all? Like what are the penguins doing? No, the penguins are just kind of wandering around. It's clear that this is not where they're, they're supposed to be because they did not see like penguin nests anywhere coming down. The penguins probably live further down and got scared by something. Okay. All right. Well, they find some of the elder ones that have been killed and their heads have been ripped off. And then they see a Shogoth. But it's exactly as you describe, Andrew. They they see it briefly as they're running away from it. <laughs> and like they hear that it's coming after them it's like yelling at them what is it yelling and probably some oh, tongue that's like some elder tongue that's mostly vowels yeah no it's like the uh, apostrophes <laughs> they only have uh they they can't actually have a language of their own they um they imitate the elder tongue cuz they don't they like don't have real minds or anything like that okay um, it's this weird cry that I can't pronounce because it's a bunch of consonants in a okay. row. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's basically described as like a giant black cloud of viscous goo that chases them down a hallway. And then they escape. And Danforth goes crazy in the plane because he sees something at the mountains as they are flying Wait, is he away. not the guy who's telling us the story? No, Dyer is oh, the okay. one telling the story. Danforth's with What him. happened to Danforth? Just the two of them. He goes crazy and they lock him in a mental institution. Oh, okay. He ends up like mumbling stuff about Yogg-Sagoth and all sorts of other Cthulhu nonsense mm-hmm. that he didn't know about before. Sure. Uh, and then they fly away and and he ends up screaming the thing that the that the Shogoth was yelling. Danforth and does? That's the end of, yeah. Hmm. That's the end of the book. Does that word don't go to Antarctica? Does that word has some like innate evil power, or is it just a sign of how crazy he has gone? I think it's just a sign of how crazy he's okay. gone. Um, I'm gonna try and pull it. I'm gonna give it's tekalili, tekalili, but it's probably a lot higher than that, higher huh. pitched and terrifying. 
It's actually a reference to a Poe story of all things. Yeah, yeah, that was something we didn't talk about when we were talking about Lovecraft. Is he like Poe is a forerunner slash influence to him? Yes, except more successful because I yes, think Poe was actually able to make <laughs> a living off of his work during his lifetime. So, sorry, yeah. HP. Sorry, HP. Uh, so, but that's the that's the story. It's kind of devoid of. As you could tell, it's kind of devoid of like a character who is a certain type of person, if that makes sense. You're going to have to be more specific. <laughs> well, okay. Dyer is the main character. He doesn't really describe the other characters in any detail about like their personalities, if that makes sense. It's mostly him just telling the reader what he saw in this place. Okay. It's almost that part of it is a little devoid of plot. There's... I would say 60% of the book is him just wandering around this city, Mm -hmm. just talking about what he saw on the walls. You can infer that Dyer is a scholarly man. You know, you know, he's a geologist. uh, And that all plays into the Lovecraftian theme of like forbidden knowledge Mm -hmm. that these men of science are going to find something that they can't handle and it's going to drive them insane and it's going to peel back the veil on reality or whatever it is. Um, but they're not, it's not like Dyer is, uh, dealing directly with an adversary at any point in the story. Well, cause it's, it's almost sense. like, I don't know, we're talking about humankind and how insignificant they are in the scheme yes. of things. Like there is no adversary because nobody that they're interacting with, like cares enough about them to... <laughs> to be adversarial like they if they get killed in the process of interacting with these things that's fine but mostly these things are kind of disinterested in in them and like getting to know them and like caring what they're doing um yeah i was reading a bit about some of the other cthulhu stories and these like elder gods have people who worship them and so whenever he's writing a story that where like a the protagonist can have like a minor victory. It's usually against a worshiper or a servant of these gods, the gods, rather than like, yeah, because yeah. you can't, you can't. What are you gonna do to Cthulhu? You can't beat up a god. Come on, you can't beat up Yogg-Sagoth. You what is this some you. video game? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's the book. I don't know what else. Do you want to talk about that you might have thought you had questions? The one thing I want to ask you is, okay, would you read more Lovecraft based on this book? Yes, because there are, there's, I know I want to read more that takes place in New England. I want to read more small town Lovecraft. I keep almost calling him Cthulhu. Oh, man. It's really the Dexter Ward thing is a good one. That's I recommend that one. The thing about this one that at times was unsatisfying is that you know it's eighty years old. We we've progressed a bit in terms of our understanding of like the setup and release of tension in a horror story. Mm-hmm. I think so. There are certain things that I could obviously see coming, and maybe that's the book's intent. Like he tells you up front that things are bad, and. The parts where he does that whole, and this is the part that's really hard to describe section, is the least spooky stuff. (laughs) It's the part where he's going through a dead city looking at 
carvings on the wall that render his life insignificant, which I guess from an existential point of view is super spooky. (laughs) Spooktober continues. But it's not, you know, it's not a thing is creeping around and he doesn't know what's going to happen or, you know, there are very few parts in the story where Dyer is in dire situations. Oh, God. All right. I'm out. We had a good run. What is this? Like, now that I've driven Andrew insane. Second episode, I think that's, I think I can call it. Time of death, 11, 18 p.m. <laughs> Sunday, October 12th. Um, so it's like, like you said earlier, they see the monster for about five seconds. It's about one paragraph. And it's not the scary in, part. No, that's, I mean, that's kind oh, of scary. Oh, is it kind of scary? Okay. It is a little scary. I, yeah, I just find the point... buildup of, of tension scarier. Just like in, in most of the horror books that we've read, it's been less about the monster itself and more about like what the monster represents and how the monster interacts with humanity and what that says about humanity that's been the scary part i don't know i agree with that i i think that what this what the author not the author what the protagonist claims is like the scariest parts of the book for the for most of the book are like the implications of everything he's seeing Mm -hmm. right the mind-bending implications of what he's seeing but what i actually found kind of a little hair-raising was the passages right after that where they just start going deeper it starts with when they find the penguin and the penguin's not scary but it was just kind of goofy (laughs) the penguin is just kind of goofy um if you think about how the scene could get shot in like a cartoon there is a shogoth like chasing them up a tunnel just running over giant (laughs) albino penguins which is kind of awesome um but leading up to that section you can tell as the reader that they are going to encounter these elder creatures or you think they're going to encounter them and then the story slowly starts kind of subverting that with this expectation of maybe they're going to encounter a shogoth like you don't know what's going to happen uh and that is the scarier part of the Mm -hmm. book um i was reading it late the other night and i got to that passage i was like i could stop right now that's (laughs) okay spooks um, I was a little spooked, um, but the the part you were just saying about how the monster is scarier when you don't actually know what it is, uh, I think his description of the of the Shogoth is so kind of impenetrable that it still accomplishes that. Like those creatures are meant to be malleable and shape shifty and weird, and when it's just a big ball of goo chasing you like knocking penguins over as it comes <laughs> after you that's kind of terrifying mm-hmm. um and the implications of like what is that what now what happens are there other creatures down there past that thing did that thing kill all the other guys i don't know it's spooky it's a little spooky i don't know i, don't know. I think one of the downfalls of of for me of the book um, it's not like a true weakness. It just lost me in its endless discussions of decadent architecture. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I think you, there's probably a reading of this book that has something to do with like how civilizations fall. Like that's what 
this the whole middle chap like the whole middle section of the book is how these elder ones like lost their status on I mean, earth that's a that's like a skynet thing like they created something to serve them and it got so smart or so good that it decided it didn't, it didn't want to serve them anymore like i think that's and a, it did something yeah about that's a pretty it. common trope i think yeah and i don't know i don't know that this is the first instant instance of it or even that you know the people who created battlestar or terminator or you know whatever other works have done something mm-hmm. like that or even thinking of lovecraft but yeah it's it's pretty common and it, and it's something i think some people really actually worry about with you know when they think about the progress of real world technology is what happens when we make something smart enough to hate us basically there's a yeah there's a great quote in the book where it says some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying what does that mean well, you just go to mars it and it's lonely so you don't go anymore <laughs> like, no i think it's talking more about how the none, there's no evidence in the ruined city of them like having elaborate machines like they didn't need them or they didn't want them um, you would think that such an advanced civilization was able to like replicate where humanity was vis-a-vis the industrial oh, so age. So they'd had them once and then backed off of it, or okay. yeah, that's kind of the implication right. is that they realized it was unfulfilling. Um, and I kind of highlighted that because that just made me think of every time someone's like, "iPhones are making us dumb. <laughs> Technology is worse." I don't even worse. own a TV. Welcome to idiocracy. <laughs> By Mike Judge. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the architecture thing, I get why it's there because the story that he's telling is that these creatures spent all this time like decorating and building the city and you can see as they were preoccupied with this uprising that they lost focus on that and it, it got the, uh, the technique gets worse and the amount of care that goes into these designs and this... Uh, the mural architecture and stuff gets increasingly uh, of lower quality, decadent, mm-hmm. as uh, Lovecraft keeps using. Right. Um, the implication that they kind of ruined their own civilization. Um, and yeah, and, and that there were other things that they were even afraid of. There's like sections where they talk about uh, murals that depict them, the elder tentacle monsters like scared of something that isn't shown Mm -hmm. and that the implication is that is what is over on those even bigger mountains that no one visits and and no one in this story so they have their own elder ones that they yes (laughs) they're hiding from okay it's it's the matryoshka doll of cosmos like how far it's it's tentacle monsters all the way down <laughs> oh, I didn't expect that to happen, but I think that's a good place to end yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. I think so. I don't know. It's about the f- you know, forbidden fruit of knowledge. If you think too hard about the world around you, it's going to drive you mad. Yeah, like there there are elements of that. There is like the Skynet thing like we talked about. There's um Yeah, I guess it is kind of Roman because you have the like the pre-empire period and then you have like the golden age of it and then you have the 
long and slow decline and that and it's all reflected in like the writing and the architecture and and all of that uh, all the other stuff like you you can track it by what's left behind yeah and oh there's one thing that he references how it seems as if the shogoths were like trying to recreate the sculptures themselves down in like the basement city and he compares it to roman imitations of artifacts from mesopotamia okay. like and it's nerdy nerdy stuff that i do not understand <laughs> from art history but i get the implication of you know nothing is new everything's been done before but what who is imitating whom and and uh there's always something there's always something that came before yeah. you um and then the, the kind of what we lose as we continue just kind of feedbacking and, and imitating things. I think there's also something to, uh, this is what I, I meant to mention this before. There's like an element of anti-modernism to it. If that makes sense. Like this was being written around the end of the first wave of the industrial age. Um, there's this sense of like, don't be careful what you learn next, you mm -hmm. know? Um, it's interesting that this was all written before the bomb because I feel like we've talked about that as an influence on on fiction before. But it feels bombish. Ah, uh, vaguely, not not in the sense that there was like a watershed moment that pr I think the bomb could have like proven Lovecraft right in a way. Oh, okay. You know, like Pan we we opened Pandora's box and this is the evil that came mm -hmm. out. But I think he saw the way or at least he felt that what the industrial age was taking away from us was way worse than anything it was giving us um and so this kind of call to perhaps slow forward scientific progress lest we lose our humanity Boy, i'm uh, glad we move past thinking about that kind of stuff as a society yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We've totally gotten over no, that. No, but nobody, there is nobody anywhere who writes in Slate about how like the <laughs> the latest gadget is the one that's going to ruin everybody forever. Hey, nobody writes just... in Slate about that. Let's not Slate hate too much. I just shared an article of theirs on our Facebook page today. Okay. It's about the joy of reading plays. That's fine. I mean, I guess if the if the popular viewpoint is that reading plays is dumb, it makes sense that they would publish the contrarian piece. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> if we have driven you mad uh, and you'd like to tell us about it, you can write us an email at overduepod at gmail dot com. You can find that article I mentioned just ten seconds ago at our Facebook page at facebook dot com slash overduepod, or you can tweet your tentacle monster dreams to us at twitter.com slash overdue pod all right this is the part where it gets hard to describe but if you want to know more about the show you can go to our website at overduepodcast.com which is where we have um the you know our our back catalog we have the next couple books that we're going to read we have um amazon links to all the books where where if you click them and and buy the books or like pretty much anything else that you buy after you click that link we get a tiny cut of the money and that helps defray our hosting costs and 
cost of buying books and all that fun stuff. We also have links to our RSS feed and our iTunes store, um, both of which you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes as we put them out. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, do take some time to rate and review us because that makes us feel good and also helps us in the iTunes rankings and helps other people recognize how great the show is when they're when they're considering whether to give it a try. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I want to thank everyone who uh, tweets at us and and says hello on Facebook. Uh, that includes Doug and Rob and Todd and uh, Abby and no, excuse me, Albie, uh, and Nina, and Erica, and Sean, um, and go on over to our Facebook page and, and like all of those people, because yeah. they're great. You are all great. Thanks for being so great. Um, What are you reading next week? All right, so when I originally put up the post asking for spooky books for Spooktober, I asked specifically for books about sexy mummies, because I feel like that's the next sexy frontier like sexy vampires no thank you that's played out have you seen those self-published books on amazon about sexy uh dinosaurs i have i have not but i am the least surprised that i've ever been to hear that there are sexy (laughs) self-published dinosaur books on amazon published by dinosaurs actually (laughs) if you knew that um, so, I, uh, my friend Kirsten, uh, recommended this book by Anne Rice called The Mummy or Ramsey's The Damned. Yeah. And it sounded pretty sexy. Um, the, the Detroit Free Press on the book cover is quoted as saying, vintage Anne Rice, quickly paced, elegantly erotic, and full of enchanting terror. So, I'm looking forward to some erotic some elegant sex you up and spook yeah, you down elegantly erotic mummy stories <laughs> those are my favorite kind yeah so everybody prepare to be spooked by how sexy it is <laughs> prepare to be spooked by your own reactions to this mummy book i think that's <laughs> i think we're done right I just got distracted thinking about sexy mummies. Uh, we got yes, it in you the did. Show. Okay, everybody, um, try not to think about sexy mummies and try to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>